All right, um, let's get to Ephesians. <laughs> you might be thinking, what? You've been gone for three months and we're back in Ephesians? Unfortunately, there was no Shekinah glory. I'm not coming down from some mountaintop. Uh, I just heard from the Lord a message from Jesus to King's Chapel. He, God has given us a message in his word. Ben Weber and I were talking about this this week, and he, he told me about an illustration he'd read this summer. And he couldn't remember which reformer it was, but one reformer who had because of persecution, had been essentially driven away from his city and his pulpit for a number of months. It was being kind of chased down, and about three months later, he finally gets back to his church, and he had been preaching through a particular text, and um, he gets up to preach after being, you know, running, chased around Europe for, running for his life, and he gets back up in the pulpit, and he just starts the very next verse. So that's, that's what we'll do. We're going to be in the middle section of Ephesians this whole semester, um, and what we're going to be looking at, and I'm going to do a little bit, I'm going to explain it more in the, in the coming weeks, what we're going to do, but we're going to look at both chapter 2 and 3 in combination with chapter 4. Um, and what we get in chapter 2 and 3 is the indicatives of the gospel, such as the gospel of reconciliation and the gospel of peace. And in chapter 4, what we get are all of these imperatives for the people of God. Bear with one another. Seek unity with one another. Forgive each other. And we're going to combine those two together. Um, and we're going to do kind of some connect the dots. But we're actually going to start this morning and next, this week and next week at the middle section that we're going to look at uh, this semester, which is in chapter 3. We're going to read in verses 14 through 19. So let's get to God's word. Ephesians chapter 3, pick it up in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God himself. This ends the reading of God's word. Praise be to the Lord. When I ask this question as we begin this morning is, are you tired of yourself? Are you tired of yourself? I think we've all had this experience of failure in our life at some point where we look at ourselves and we go, I am sick of me. I am sick of who I am. I'm tired of doing the things that I've been trying not to do for years and decades. I'm tired of losing my temper. I am tired of my constant critical thoughts. I am weary of crossing moral boundaries. I am weary of my weaknesses. Eugene Peterson says one way to define the spiritual life is getting so tired and fed up with yourself that you go on to something better, which is following Jesus. Getting so tired and fed up with yourself? Are you tired of yourself? And do you want to be something better, a better version of yourself? Remember the old recruiting Marine commercial? How did it go? This is what I I believe I remember is from the kids. Join the Marines and you can be all you can be. Be all you can be. But perhaps you have been a part of God's army and God's people and God's church for a very long time and yet you look at yourself and you say, this is it? This be all I can be and this is it? This is all I have become? I am tired of this man. Well, for you, I have really, really good news this morning. God has a vision for your life, your life, 
and is seen here in Paul's prayer. The apex of his prayer is a vision that Paul has and that God has for you. What's a vision? A vision is a desired future that captivates and drives your life now in living towards that desired future. And Paul has a vision for God's people. And what is Paul's vision? What is the the climax of this prayer? That you would be filled with all the fullness of God's. That you would be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, for that to strike us as to what's really significant about that, let's ask the question, what does that even mean? What this means is this, is that we would become a people so filled by God himself that we would become like God in the fullness of his character. That you would become like God in the fullness of his character. That means, in other words, very shortly, that you would become perfect. That's God's vision for you. That's Paul's pastoral prayer for you. It is a statement of God's vision and Paul's vision for us that God is setting a standard and a level to which he is praying that we would be filled. And that level is nothing less than the very perfection of God's character. In you, in you, and in me. This vision, this standard for what God is doing in us is the same of principle that drives verses like this. Have you ever read them and kind of scratched your head? 1 Peter 1.16, you shall be holy for I am holy. Matthew 5, verse 48, you therefore must be what? Okay? Somewhat good? A little bit better? No, you must be perfect. And what is the standard of perfection that he gives there? As your heavenly Father is perfect. God's plan for you God's vision for you, and therefore Paul's desire that he most ardently prays for us is this, that at the end of all things, when Christ returns, that the ultimate completion in you is that you will be perfect and complete. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. It talks about this, that we have been given the apostles and the prophets to equip the saints for the work of ministry so the body of Christ may be built up. And how's the end? To the, come to the knowledge of the Son of God, to, this, to the measure of the full stature of Christ, the fullness of Christ. It's what husbands and wives are supposed to seek for each other as well, not just pastors for, for church members. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, what? Without spot without wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. What is God's vision for his church? That we would be like Jesus, perfect in character. And perhaps a more familiar way of putting this is this, is that you would simply look like Christ. You would look like Jesus. And the fullness of God is in Jesus, right? Colossians 2, 9, 10 says, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And in fact, this has been God's desire for you since before time began. This whole idea of predestination and foreknowing, why did he do it? That we, as it says in Romans 8, 29, might be conformed to the image of his son. Consider with me, Consider with me for just a moment. What are those places in your life that you're so tired of? And instead, what would it look like in that place in your life if you had been perfected? If you lived and acted and thought and desired with the perfection of Jesus? 
that would be a beautiful life. How would you love others? How would you love your kids? How might you love your enemies? How would you live? What would be your demeanor? How would you respond when you got an unexpected bill, or when you were stuck in traffic, or when you experienced great loss? In all these things, we would know this. You would love perfectly. You would live perfectly. You would work perfectly. You would parent perfectly. You would dwell with the Father perfectly. And this is your destiny. This is your destiny. So now this desire, this longing, this vision that Paul joins God, joins with God in praying towards is the end. But he also prays not simply about the end, but he prays about the means. This means for the end of our life. He prays that we would, some things that we must have right now in the context of this life, in the day to day for the next, for the rest of our life, that would build us towards this fullness of perfection and character. And what are those things? Paul prays two particular prayers in this leading up to the fullness in God himself. There are there these two things. First, he prays that the power of God, that the power of God would become the indwelling authority in our lives. And second, he prays that the love of God would become the all-surpassing experience in knowledge in our lives. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Those two points. So first, that if we are going to be perfected in the full character of Christ, Paul prays that two things, that this is the means towards that end. For the rest of your life, he prays that God will provide these two things. First, that the power of God would become the indwelling authority in your life. If you're to be made like Christ, the first thing that must happen to you is Christ must come to live inside of you. We receive a strength in the form of the power of the Holy Spirit, it says, and in the indwelling of Christ himself, right? That's what it says in verses 16 and 17, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant that you be strengthened with power, how? Through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now understand that the strengthening by the Spirit, is in our inner being, in the dwelling of Christ in our hearts, this is the same experience. This is not you get the Spirit, and then a few years, few, few years later you get Jesus. No, they come one and the same. They're a package deal. It's not that you get the Spirit and then you get Christ later, but they come hand in hand. Where the Spirit goes, Christ goes. And where Christ is, the Spirit must be there as well. And also understand that the inner being in the heart, the place where God goes, where the Spirit goes, is in our inner being, in our heart. These are equivalent terms that Paul is using here. The inner being is opposed to our outer being, the body, whereas the inner being is the soul, the very heart of who we are. Now remember that the heart is the seat of our lives. We often tend to think of it as our emotions, but it is far, something far greater than our emotions. It is the throne room of your life. It is the furnace of the all desires, and everything else flows out of the heart. Your emotions, your thoughts, your actions flow out of this desire throne room, out of this desire seat in your life. And it says that that is where Christ comes to dwell. He comes to dwell there. Now here we'll do just for a moment, we'll dive into the Greek. There are two words in the Greek that can be translated as dwell, as dwell. One is peroikeo, peroikeo, which means to stay in a place like you would stay in a hotel. You're there for one day, a couple days, and then you're on. 
or like a Bedouin who moves from place to place. But the word here that is used is actually kat oikeo, which means to establish a permanent home. Therefore, what we are saying here is that when Christ comes to dwell in us, it is the difference in both the permanence of the stay and in the relationship of the one who dwells there. It's the permanence of the stay and the relationship of the one who dwells there. When I go to a hotel, I plan to stay there. Neither do I plan to stay there permanently, nor do I plan to purchase and own the hotel. But when I go home, I am there permanently and I own the place. That is the difference. And so what Paul is praying here is that Christ in saying that he would come and dwell in our hearts in the interior of who we are, that he would come and sit at the throne room of your desires, Paul's praying, therefore, that Christ would be king in your life, that he would live in the castle of your heart where he would take up a permanent residence and have ultimate mastery and reign over the desire seat of your life so that everything in your life emanates from that throne room and that is changed over time. So, I have good news. God is going to perfect you and to make you perfectly like Christ. And he will do this by coming to reside in you and to take over your heart. To take over the capital, the throne room, reigning as the rule of your heart. He is now on an unstoppable mission inside of you from the inside out by his power to perfect you. You're being perfected by your power Praise be to Jesus. No, you're being perfected by the very power of God inside of you. I have good news for you. God is going to perfect you and to make you perfectly like Christ and he will do this by coming to reside and take over your heart, the throne of your life and he is gonna sit there permanently, permanently. And that is so important, right? Because this project of perfection requires his permanent presence. It requires his lifelong presence with us. One of the things when I do weddings and I read from that passage that I read a little while ago from Ephesians chapter five and I say, one of the reasons that the vision that God has for marriage is that we would each become our future glory selves because of the work of the marriage. And the truth is that this covenant has to be lifelong because this project of moving towards your future glory self, the perfected you, it takes a lifelong process. And therefore, when you commit to one another in marriage, you don't, perfect, you don't commit to one another believing that they're gonna be perfect in a week. And you know, it should actually shape your expectations as you move into that covenant, which is, I am sticking around because they're not perfect today. They're not perfect today, but I have a vision for who they'll be tomorrow. By the way, this is also why you should stick with churches. Because you make a covenant. And this is why Paul, even though he, he writes to these churches and he's often upset, but Paul does not give in to the church because he's made a covenant with the church. He said, I am with you and I am for you because Paul has a vision and saying, listen, we are not perfected. We are not as we ought to be, are we? But God has come to dwell with us permanently. And the permanence of Christ's presence in you is a guarantee that he will finish his work in you. And so he is writing to Christians and Christians. It's interesting here. He's writing to Christians. And we've looked at this earlier on in Ephesians. Christians, we know, are already indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
They already have the Spirit of Christ. So why is Paul praying for Christ to dwell in them when Christ is already there? Does it mean that only part of Christ was in us? That you got, that when Christ comes into you and the Spirit regenerates you and Christ comes to live in your heart when you're first saved, that you only get a, 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 a little bit of Jesus? Or maybe you got a little bit of Jesus, but you didn't get much of the Holy Spirit? Is that what it means? Does it mean that we are only partly saved? No. Well, and yes. You were saved, but there are aspects of the fullness of Christ that have to be pressed into your life so that you are saved every day. To this, I would say that we must come to an understanding that he comes to dwell and take the seat of our hearts, but like a country that takes another, another country's capital, they take the ruling center, which is what your heart is. That rule and that reign, though, must be pushed out into the entirety of that country. And our, our country right now is experiencing a bad illustration of this, isn't it? That 20 years of having the rule and the reign in one particular country, we, don't have, we didn't have the power and the ability to change and press that authority into the rest of the country. But Jesus does. Jesus does. So that when he takes the rule and reign of your heart and your life, that that is the very beginning, and he's going to press out his rule and reign into all aspects of your being. Therefore, it is an ongoing filling. It's an ongoing feeling. Let me see if I can give you a, an earthy illustration to kind of give you a sense of this. Take a balloon to understand how, how, how God himself, when he comes to live in us, he's constantly filling us up, and then it seems like, wait, Paul prays that we would be filled even more. So how do, if you're already filled with God, how are you filled even more? It's like a balloon. You blow it, and let's say you give it about three pounds of pressure. And you look at a balloon, and you say, is this, is this balloon blown up? Yes, it's full of air. And yet, then you, but you can blow on it more and it gets, increases in size. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it's full of air. And in, in both occasions, it's filled. But there's more filling that can happen. And as you fill it more and more, you give it more air, it begins to take a shape and it gets larger. And in this case, though, the balloon of our lives, it's not simply that our balloon simply becomes this amorphous kind of rectangular, uh, oblong looking thing, but it takes an actual shape to it. If you were to go to, to Disney World, they have this amazing thing with the balloons. You can blow them up and you see it and it becomes Mickey Mouse. The balloon takes a shape. Now, that balloon is $20. It's expensive. But the wondrous good news is this, that with, is that the breath of God and the spirit of Christ is the unstoppable force, and when he breathes into us, you are taking on the shape of who? Not Mickey Mouse, but Jesus. That the breath of God is blown in you so that right now you're a little image of Jesus, and more and more as he breathes into your life, you begin to take the shape of Jesus more and more and more. The breath of God and the spirit of God enters our life. He causes us to grow. And now what is, what, what is the, what's the, what creates the pressure? It's the heat of that breath. We press this, this image to the it's in degree <laughs> that I can pull out of, this, out of this illustration. As the balloon goes further and further, what is the heat of the breath of the Spirit of God? It is the love of God. It is the love of God that we have this unstoppable force within us called the Spirit of Christ. And the force that he is pressing into our lives to cause us to grow and become more like Christ, that force, the tip of that spear is the love of God. And here we segue not just 
to new, a new point, but to new metaphors, from balloon to botanical. And so desiring that we would be perfect one day, repeat and say, God desires two things, that the power of God would be the indwelling authority in our lives, but the gospel tip of the spear of that power is that he would come into us with his love. And Paul desires that one day we would be perfect. And so he prays that the love of God would become the all-surpassing knowledge in our lives. What, so he prays for the power of God to come into us, and then the power of God presses into our hearts and lives. What shapes us and forms us to look like Jesus is a knowledge of God's love for us. That's what he's saying. He says it in verse 17 through 19. Read this passage with me again as I read it out loud. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you be rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The heat of God's breath that causes us to grow and become more like Christ is to experience the limitless dimensions of God's love for you. That's why we talk about it so much. Because it actually has the power to change you. To change you. This is an experience of God's love such that it would be like standing in front of the oceans and you just can't take it all in. It makes, it makes the oceans pale in size in comparison to this love of God. Or standing before makes the Grand Canyon look like a mere crack in a sidewalk. And that's what the love of God makes those things like. This is a love that is dizzying scope. You ever been someplace and it's so grand that you almost feel dizzying by, by, the, the, by the scene of it? And it's a love that is described as beyond comprehension. We can't wrap our minds around this. How do we experience this kind of love, though? How do you experience this kind of love, this dizzying love that goes beyond comprehension? We can't make this happen. We can't force this experience into our lives. There are no buttons to push. There are no silver buttons to sh bullets to shoot. But we are given hints in the context of this passage that helps us see what is the context in which our souls begin to soar in the knowledge of God's love. Let me give you three things. First is this. That the knowledge of the love of God happens in the context of God's people. Did you see? Paul slipped it in there oh so quickly. That we may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints, with all the saints, this is not the project of individuals. It was a bizarre, weird experience. In my, my sabbatical, I, there was so much great rest, but you know what? There was actually a significant loneliness in it because I was separated from the people that I live life with most frequently. You. I didn't get to worship with you, you people. And wouldn't you know, you helped me understand God's love better. I think it is here to point out the love of Christ is so vast and so tremendous. This is what Andy was getting at when he was saying, I need to hear you, you communicate the, lo the love of God to me, and you need to hear me communicate the love of God to you. That we, this, it's so vast and so tremendous, this love of God, that we will never be able to comprehend it on our own. That there are aspects and dimensions to God's love that you have experienced that I have yet to attain to, and yet you bring it into the room with description, with power. To grasp God's love, you need to see and hear the displays of his love in the testimonies of other people. To grasp God's love, you need to experience his love incarnated through his body of believers. To grasp God's love, you need the insights of others into the nuances of God's love that have been yet to be revealed to you, but have been revealed to others. 
To grasp God's love, you need to hear the Spirit of God speak through God's people specifically into your life. It is a saying in the church to say, you don't, you don't get to play the God's Holy Spirit. Well, that's true, right? I'm not the Holy Spirit, and you're not the Holy Spirit, but guess what? The Holy Spirit resides in you to communicate and exhort and encourage through the Word of God. To grasp God's love, you need to experience the melody of God's people as they sing the truth. I miss this so much from you. That they sing the truth of God's love, such that the vibratory frequency of God's people singing different notes about God's love begins to reverberate in our soul such that we hear the fifth voice. That's why we need community. It is in this context that suddenly we begin to hit rapturous places of our understanding beyond comprehension of God's love for us. Second, knowing the love of God happens in the context of labored meditation. It comes from labored meditation on the word of God and on the gospel of Christ. We make perhaps, perhaps an unconscious determination that because it says this experience and this knowledge is beyond comprehension, that therefore it doesn't involve thinking or intellect or the mind. That would be faulty. That would be foolish. But the memorization and the study and the chewing on, the, the meditation on God's word is the preferred kindling of God's spirit to inflaming our souls. And so you may not soar to worlds unknown and your knowledge and comprehension of God's love today, tomorrow, but you are stackling kindling in which the Holy Spirit one day might light on fire inside of your soul such that you burn with a longing for God that you've never experienced before. That happens over time, over hard, labored meditation of God's word. The context of such a holy knowledge of God's love is a context that does not split thinking and emotion. They are both there. There's something so wonderful about these images being joined together, don't you think? There is a rooting and grounding in God's love. And which, right, that brings this imagery we think of something consistent, steady, earthy, grounded, considered, sober, unmoving, unshaking. Almost sounds boring. Rooted and grounded in God's love. And then we have the vaulted imagery of breadth and length and height and depth that surpasses knowledge. This imagery soars. It is ethereal and expansive. It goes beyond sense perception. It is uncontrolled and it's unbounded. It is measureless and it's poetic. But they're there in the same text. That one leads to the other. This soaring occurs in the meditation and the reflection upon the nuances and the intricacies of God's love found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the experience that Paul is referring to is such that we can't wrap our minds around the love of God because it has become, it is so complex and it's too vast for our grasp. But the way you come to that sense of the vastness of it is to labor to try to grasp the unknowable, to know the unknowable, to grasp the ungraspable. This is what we might call here in this description 4D love, right? The breadth, the height, the depth, the length. Let's just take a moment to try to Meditate on each of these four, just real briefly. To grasp the ungraspable, the breadth of the love of God. The breadth of Christ's love is so broad that it doesn't matter what tribe or kindred or people or nation you come from. It doesn't matter what your pedigree is, what your socioeconomic standing is. It doesn't matter where you're from. His love comes to you. The length of the love of God. What do you think the length is? 
I have a feeling the length of the love of God is referring to the fact that Christ says in Hebrews, I will never, 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 never forsake you. We can't get enough nevers. Do you know Psalm 139? The psalmist says, if I run over there, if I go up there, if I go down there, I can't get away from you. You hold on to me. My, you're tenacious, God. You cling to me and the length of your love. There have been times when you've said, God, catch me if you can, and what's wonderful is the length of his love means he did, he does. His love never ends, it never ends. It was there at the beginning, it'll be there at the end, it's there in the middle, the height of the love of God. It is high enough to cover the greatest longings of your soul. We live in a world of frustrated longings, and yet his love will actually bring all of your desires will be yes in him ultimately. The depth of the love of God is deep enough to wash over your deepest shame. For his love entered the depths of death itself. This is why we have this commitment to get to the gospel every week. Because what transforms you is just to try to grasp the ungraspable. To become somebody who longs to know the love of God. This is an experience that rises from the truth being known at the core of your being such that you taste it. This is no mere cognitive and intellectual knowledge, but it is not less than those things. But it moves beyond comprehension, it says. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge is to say that we have personally experienced it. It is the movement from describing honey to tasting honey. All descriptions come to an end. You are silent in your descriptions of God's love. And you simply experience it because now you know the unknowable and you've experienced the indescribable and so you're left silently mumbling to yourself, oh my, oh my, oh my. This may sound or look different in different one of us is what that oh my moment might look like. Ray Cortez tells a story about a pastor friend in Atlanta in which there was a homeless man that Went to their church for many years. His name was David. He began attending the church, and the, the kids referred to him as David the Pirate because he had a, a patch on one of his eyes. For almost 15 years, he, had, he came to the church, and he had this scratchy beard and a scratchy voice. He talked like this. He kind of sounded like Popeye, if you remember Popeye, if you're over 40. He had a whole slew of fading tattoos from his career in the Merchant Marine. David the Pirate often came with the remnants of his best friends, Jim and Johnny, Jim Beam and Johnny Walker. He had a gregarious personality, but the lack of access to a shower or to a washing machine made sure David the pirate never went unnoticed. You smelled him before you saw him. They gave him the job of handing out bulletins. (laughs) He lost that job because one Sunday he dropped all the bulletins. They went scattering across the foyer and the entrance of the sanctuary in his cavernous church, and he began to... Swear, dropping an F-bomb. But not just one, many, many F-bombs. So they found David another job away from the children of the church. But David was faithful to come to church, though. He came every week. They had the service one week in particular. The day there was this astounding event. The pastor transitioned from the service sermon to the communion, the Lord's table, and he was just beginning to talk about the Lord's Supper before and, and, and call people to the table. And just before it was time for him to call people forward, suddenly David came from the back, stumbling forward, throwing himself, kneeling at the stage. And so a few people 
came around him tenderly and were praying over him as the pastor kept inviting people and describing and giving an understanding of the Lord's Supper. And just as he came to that moment, you know that moment where the pastor's voice gets soft and he invites you to the table? It's this intimate moment. David the pirate stood up and he said, Pastor, the gospel is kicking my ass. Now, you're not supposed to say that in church. That's why I would never say that word in church. I would only, I would put it in the mouth of a character. But David the pirate really said that word. In church. And what did the church do? They cheered. Because what did they understand had happened? That the gospel had washed over David the pirate such that it was kicking his butt. Something had happened, 15 years of attending the church, of the gospel, of kindling being put there, and something was finally aflame. See, we need the gospel to just kick our butt, for the gospel to wash over us. Whatever, what descriptive words do you want to use? To change us from the inside out. Because this is what the love of God has for us, right? This is what transforms you. It's what sanctifies you. The power to change you from those besetting sins that you thought about at the beginning of the service. The key to obedience at the very heart, the key is a change of what you love. This is why the old Puritan, and a Scottish Puritan said that what we need in order to remove ourselves from sin is we need the expulsive power of a greater affection. John Bunyan pushed this. He said, you, people came to John Bunyan and his preaching, they, they said, you gotta stop telling Christians of God's unswerving love for them all the time. If you keep assuring people of God's love for them, then they will just live however they want. But Bunyan said, if I could convince people of God's love, then they would not do what they currently desire to do. But instead, their desires themselves would be transformed so that they want to do the will of God with their life. They want to love God. And the breath of God and the spirit of Christ, when he comes to fill you and he transforms you to the fullness of Christ, and as he does this, as you come to know more and more and more deeply the love of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is why it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says this, Beloved children, we are God's children now. That's an object of truth. And what we will be, though, has not yet appeared. You're not done, praise be to God. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Now once again, can you manipulate this experience into your life? Can you make this happen? Can we manufacture this? Can, if I just preach longer, God forbid, or shorter, or better, could I produce this in you? No, but God can. And so what do we do now? Here's the third thing. We do what Paul's doing. We pray. We pray. Because God can do it. I have a small gift. <laughs> it's a foolish gift. I, a couple things. One thing that I, I have two things I give you. I preach and I pray. And it was interesting going to listen to other people preach this summer. Preaching is foolishness. It's such foolishness. Now, that's what the, that's what the New Testament says. That the gospel is foolishness. Not only that, we're bad at this. 
I can't believe you show up. We're so bad at this, and yet the Spirit does something. He uses foolishness. And prayer, prayer is so foolish, but is the power of God for the salvation of his people. And so my gift to you is this summer, I've always had prayer lists, but I use prayer cards now. And so my gift to you and my greatest desire for you is the prayer of Paul. And so I pray for you. This has your names on it. Each of you by family and by name. It has specific requests for each of you. This sits in my car so that when I drive around town, I rotate prayers. Now, you can't see your card. Because I don't want you to know some of the things I'm praying for some of you. (laughs) But feel free to ask me things you'd like me to add to it. But here's the consistent thing that's in every single one of them. It's the prayer of Paul, that you would know God, that you would know the love of Christ. Because what Amanda Thornton needs this week, there is no guarantee that God is going to answer our prayers for her husband. But what can never be taken away from her is God himself. There is no guarantee that your children will not break your heart and walk away from the Lord. I can pray for it till I'm blue in the face. But what is guaranteed is you will never lose God himself. So let's pray for that. Would you want to pray that God would perfect you by giving him his health? Let's do that this morning. And then we'll worship. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that your love is incomprehensible. <laughs> but Lord, I pray that you would give us the discipline to dive into the oceans of your love, to labor hard to comprehend the unknowable, the incomprehensible. God, just take a moment. Where are you imperfect this morning? Where do you long to see the love of Christ be applied in that area such that you begin to reflect him more beautifully? God, I thank you. I love your vision for us, God. Thank you that you're going to perfect us. So spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Breathe again so that the balloon of our lives is expansive. May the love of God become more real and more known inside of us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.